Hello again, and welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon. Great to have you here again as we go around the CFL for an in-depth look at the news, notes, and of course, betting lines, as week nine is now upon us. Before we do our review of what transpired last week and dive into the week ahead, I'll remind you that you can follow along on Twitter and hit me up anytime at kdrive88, that's kdrive eight eight. And feel free to check out the website, firstlinepicks.com. We'll start our look back at Week 8 with a game that managed to live up to two of the old adages that are often associated with the CFL. And those would be that no lead is ever safe, and anyone can win on any given day. I'm of course talking about the game between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Toronto Argonauts, which saw the 15-point underdog Argos overturn a 20 to nothing second-quarter deficit and eventually go on to stun the Bombers with a last-second victory. This game followed the script pretty well for about 25 minutes. The Argos once again dug themselves a huge early hole with a combination of a defense that didn't look ready and an offense that shot themselves in the foot repeatedly with holding penalties and uninspired play-calling but this game really seemed to turn on a late first-half drive where the Bombers' defense failed to get themselves off the field, and the Argos gave themselves life at 20-10 heading into halftime. That drive started a trend of McLeod Bethel-Thompson marching the Argos down the field in 10-yard increments, and I thought the Bombers did a pretty poor job of adjusting their schemes to counter this. The Winnipeg secondary has done a pretty good job in coverage this season, but for whatever reason they were tending to play their coverage guys really deep in a lot of standard down and distance situations. That makes sense when you have a big lead, but as the lead evaporated, I kept expecting to see defensive coordinator Richie Hall tighten things up, and that never really happened the whole night. Any plays where Winnipeg failed to get pressure, it seemed Bethel Thompson had somebody wide open 10 yards upfield, and the Argos were content to nickel and dime them and gradually get themselves back into the game. Chris Rainey had a great night on returns for Toronto, and their coverage team did a great job of limiting the Bombers' return game, which if you recall shredded them the first time these two teams met. I noticed the Argos elected to take the ball on their 35-yard line after the two Winnipeg field goals early in the game, I've typically been of the mind that unless the wind is a significant factor, it's a better idea to receive the kickoff after a field goal rather than scrimmage. It's pretty rare that a return man can't get across the 25, so there's not really a whole lot to lose. And as we're seeing on a nightly basis, there's everything to gain with how frequently huge runs and touchdowns are happening. With the single season record for kick return touchdowns already broken less than halfway through the season, I would seriously question any coach declining the kickoff after a field goal in most circumstances right now. The end result of all this was a stunning loss for a Winnipeg team that seems to be good for a game like this every summer. Matt Nichols is a guy who seems to forever be trying to silence the critics, and at 5-0 and and looking pretty good in the process, there was a sense that he was starting to finally put a lot of the doubts to rest for good. Then you have nights like this, and that old doubt seems to creep back in. Nichols didn't play poorly by any means and didn't commit a single turnover, but at the end of the day, you can't let an 0-6 team flip a 20 to nothing lead on you and do so on an evening where your running back had over 150 yards. I don't think the Bombers' offense had the greatest night in terms of their play calls, and throwing the ball as often as they did in a game they never trailed was questionable. But at some point your quarterback needs to make a throw to keep the sticks moving and that just did not happen at all in the second half of the game. Winnipeg graded successful on just 4 of 16 pass attempts in the second half, which will not cut it very often, even with the success the run game was having. 
The second half of the Thursday doubleheader was also decided by a late touchdown, with the Riders outlasting the Tiger Cats to the tune of 24-19. This game opened with Saskatchewan as slight minus one and a half favourites, a number which moved to minus three by game day and eventually closed at minus three and a half. The Masoli injury and Dane Evans starting was obviously the big talking point going into this one, but the midweek news that Brandon Banks was nursing an injury that eventually led to him being scratched from the lineup was probably the biggest concern from a betting perspective. There's been a growing trend emerging, and unfortunately for us it's not a good one, and that's these surprise injury announcements that have been dropping a day or so before kickoff. When this line opened, there wasn't any reason to suspect Banks might not play, and from a handicapping angle, that throws a real wrench into things. It would be great if we could wait until five minutes before kickoff to place all of our bets, and theoretically you can, of course, but lines with a lot of value don't tend to stay on the board for a long time after they first appear, so it's a fine line you have to walk between getting the best number and betting with as much information as possible, and sometimes it's just not possible to accomplish both those things. This is a factor when betting on totals for games that are still far enough in advance that a reliable weather report isn't available yet either. If you're on the under, this isn't a problem. But it's when you're looking at an over that you need to be aware of bad weather that could hamper offenses, and sometimes it's a better idea to wait until game day to make a bet on an over. Nothing worse than jumping on an over early in the week, only to see the total drop three points an hour before kickoff if a rainstorm is rolling in. As for the football game itself, I thought this was a pretty well-played game. Both defenses were strong, particularly Saskatchewan, who really only gave up two drives of significance. Hamilton was really effective in their front seven and gave up very little along the ground, despite the Riders trying all night to create space for William Powell. The first time these teams met, Powell was the only guy Saskatchewan could really get going, so nice adjustment from the Tiger Cats to limit him in this game. Where they failed, and what was ultimately the difference in the ball game, was... Delvin Bro in that secondary getting burned one too many times by Shaq Evans, who had a fantastic night. Hamilton was playing a lot of press coverage, which tends to be a lot more boom and bust than a more passive zone set, and this led to four Cody Fajardo passes going for over 25 yards, which isn't awful, but in a tight game with a lot of punting, those field position swings loom large. I like the play of all four lines in what developed into a couple of pretty good battles in the trenches. As mentioned, Hamilton did a very nice job containing William Powell, and Cody Fajardo for that matter, though he managed to get loose on the game-winning touchdown, which was not without controversy. Orlando Steinauer appeared to sniff out the bootleg possibility from the sidelines and raced onto the field to call timeout, and unfortunately none of the refs were able to see him or hear him over the crowd noise. That's a tough one to miss in that spot, and I can forgive the officials to an extent considering the riders were already set on the line, but where the hell was the command center on this one? I talked about this a little bit last week, and it's frankly unnerving to see these guys inserting themselves into games largely at random. There doesn't seem to be any clear procedure regarding when and for what reason the command center can call down to the head referee, and it baffles me that these guys called down to respot the ball half a yard after a first down play on the previous rider possession, but apparently were unable or unwilling to jump in on a play that decided the football game. Commissioner Randy Ambrosi has been pretty vocal in regards to the command centre, and the mandate from him going into the season was that these reviews needed to happen a lot quicker, and he reiterated that reviews were only intended to correct clear and obvious mistakes, and this just isn't the way things have been operating. 
We've seen way too many lengthy reviews in regards to borderline pass interference calls, and I think by most people's definition, a call that gets reversed after watching the replay seven times in slow motion was not a clear and obvious mistake. Getting back to the game at hand, um, despite getting burned on the winning touchdown there, Hamilton's D-line did have a pretty solid night all around, and at the same time I thought the Riders' O-line, battling injuries as they have been for much of the year, hung in there pretty well too. The Tiger Cats weren't able to get anything going along the ground, and it certainly didn't help that Malik Irons left the game injured early on. I like Anthony Coombs in more of a pass-catching role out of the backfield, and indeed he caught a highlight reel touchdown, but he's not an ideal option as a straight-ahead runner, and Hamilton actually resorted to using receiver Braylon Addison as a tailback, so props to offensive coordinator Tommy Condell for getting creative with what he had at his disposal. 19 points isn't quite enough, but not a bad effort, I thought, in a hostile environment with a backup quarterback, a third-string running back, and no Brandon Banks. Saskatchewan comes through for their backers with the late cover, and the possibility of overtime was the only real threat to the under 50.5, which of course did go on to cash. Ottawa got past Montreal in overtime on Friday night, in what can pretty much be summed up as a special teams disaster by the Owls. Devontae Dedman is already looking like quite a find for the Red Blacks, as he posted a record-setting number of return yards, which included two trips to the end zone. I thought the first one was a Pretty good play on the part of Deadman and the guys in front of him. The second one, though, was definitely some of the worst tackling I've ever seen in my life on a return play. I think all 12 Alouettes on the field had a chance to make the stop, and they failed to a laughable degree in doing so. Ottawa's defense had their best game since the start of the season, with their biggest play obviously being an interception inside the Montreal 10-yard line. This unit had been getting killed through the air for weeks on end, but they stepped up with a very nice effort, holding Montreal to a pitiful 34% success rate on pass plays, and they avoided getting burned for any huge gainers, surrendering just a single pass that went for 20-plus yards. Add up what they were able to do on defense and special teams, and it made winning the game possible despite another rather ugly night offensively. Having Dominique Davis back there throwing the ball was obviously a positive, and he did lead a very effective late drive to get Lewis Ward in position for the game-tying field goal. That continued into the overtime session as well, and that's an encouraging sign for an offense that had turned the ball over almost as often as they'd picked up a first down for the first 50 or so minutes of this football game. From the Alouette perspective, losing Vernon Adams to a concussion in the third quarter was always going to be the focus, and reasonably so. Antonio Pipkin did very little in the way of moving the football, and I really have to question why Kahari Jones deviated away from the run game, especially with Adams on the sideline. You look back over the Owls' three-game win streak coming in, and they were running the ball at about a 50% clip on situation-neutral play calls. That dropped way off to 33% in this game, and while the red-black defense should get some credit for limiting the damage William Stanback was able to do, by and large, the Alouettes took the wind out of their own sails with so many incomplete passes on first down in the second half of the football game. Overall, not the prettiest of football games. One team housing two kicks and creating another touchdown out of nothing by forcing a turnover at their opponent's goal line is usually more than enough to ruin things from a handicapping perspective, and indeed Ottawa gets the outright win along with covering the seven points this closed at. Tough night for those of us on the under 53, which was still looking doable until the very end of regulation, but ended up going down despite bad outings from both offenses. But this was not the only game of the week that was determined mainly by special teams, as the Calgary Stampeders used a kickoff return touchdown from Terry Williams, plus another major that was the end result of a fumbled kick by Edmonton to slip past the Eskimos 24-18. 
In their defense, Edmonton's special teams coverage unit did manage to recover a Stampeder fumble as well that led to a field goal. But when you combine that 11-point swing with kicker Sean White missing a short field goal and a convert, the final result is basically two touchdowns worth of damage done by special teams, and it's awfully difficult for the other two units to overcome that. And that kick coverage unit even got bailed out earlier in the game on what would have been a punt return touchdown from Williams if not for an illegal block in the back that, in all honesty, probably actually didn't really affect the outcome of the play besides the fact that it drew a flag. All told, awful night on specials for the Eskimos in a game that, not surprisingly, ended up being a defensive struggle. This was another game that had some unexpected injury news and lineup decisions come down fairly late in the week. For Edmonton, Greg Ellingson was ruled out on Friday with few details provided, and C.J. Gable returned to the lineup in place of Shaq Cooper. On the Calgary side, Romar Morris made his season debut after being injured in the playoffs last year. All three of these moves were a positive from the Calgary perspective, and no, I did not misspeak there. As you've probably figured out if you've been listening recently, I am not a big fan of what C.J. Gable has been giving the Eskimos out of the backfield. I liked how Cooper looked two weeks ago against Toronto, and I'd have kept him in the lineup. Edmonton's offensive line didn't have a great night run blocking by any means, but you have to be able to make the first man miss in close quarters in today's CFL, and Gable hasn't done that this season, and he didn't do it in this game either. On the Calgary side, they were pretty conservative with how many reps they gave Morris, but this is a guy to watch out for going forward as he works himself back into game shape. As far as pure rushing, Calgary didn't get much going, which is par for the course against an Eskimos defense that has completely stuffed everyone not named William Stanback. But Morris is a dual threat out of the backfield and very effective on screen plays, which we saw a couple of times in this game. I thought it was a clean game from Nick Arbuckle. Nothing special, but he didn't turn the ball over. Maybe that sounds a bit simple, but in a season where huge numbers of turnovers are having a significant impact on results, you'll take it if you're Dave Dickinson, especially against a defense that was already at the top of the league in most categories, with a gap that is widening. For the Eskimos' offense, this was a tale of two halves. I expected coming in that the Stampeder defense was going to be playing some tighter coverage than they had up until now to eliminate the intermediate stuff that Trevor Harris has lived on, and the Eskimos were too slow in adjusting to this. The 83-yard bomb to Ricky Collins really seemed to take the lid off the Stampeders' secondary, and you have to question the Eskimos' decision not to really try anything more than 10 yards downfield until the third quarter with a zero on the scoreboard. Calgary hadn't given up a single play over 30 yards the entire season until that aforementioned pass, but they gave up four more of 25-plus in pretty short order once Edmonton started testing them, despite no Ellingson or DeVaris Daniels in the lineup. Betting-wise, this line stayed pretty well a pick'em right until kickoff, and if you were on the under, you had yourself a nice little sweat right up until the final play. I liked Edmonton in this one. I think the defense came as advertised and more than did their part, but alas, special teams dug too big of a hole for them to fully crawl out of. It'll be a quick turnaround for Calgary, who now head to Winnipeg for a Thursday night clash, and that's where we'll start our look at Week 9. This might be the biggest game of the season so far, with first place on the line, and I think it might just be the most interesting line of the season as well. This opened with the Bombers favored by close to 10 points in the very early going, and has settled in a minus 8 with an over-under of 48.5. The reason I find this so interesting is that you have a Winnipeg team who's suddenly dropped a pair of games to find themselves at 5-2, and two, while Calgary has continued to walk the tightrope and find creative ways to win in building their record to 5-2 and two as well, and could possibly get Bo Levi Mitchell back a little earlier than we were anticipating. 
as he has been an active participant in practice this week. He's been declared out for this game, but it sounds like he'll be good to go next time. The betting public has been bullish on the Bombers throughout the season, with pretty much every line moving in their favour from open to close. This almost has the feel of the books saying, fine, if you love Winnipeg so much, here you go. But the timing is a bit curious coming off two straight losses where they failed to cover. With the often reactionary nature of betters, I'm a little surprised Calgary hasn't been completely steamed yet. But perhaps we're seeing a more careful and calculated approach to the Stampeders, who have really been a nightmare for betters in terms of their end results this year, tending to pretty much do the opposite of what the market expected in almost every case. I think if this number holds in there at more than a touchdown by kickoff, it's a pretty strong statement that the public isn't ready to commit to a team living off special teams and turnover magic. I think on its own this is a very reasonable stance to have on the Stampeders right now, but what I question is just how justifiable it is to lay more than a touchdown on a Winnipeg team that is suddenly showing cracks on both sides of the ball. That might be a little harsh in regards to the defense who really just had one bad half and a bit of football against Toronto, but it doesn't sit easy with me that the Argos basically called the same play about 20 times in a row and continued to have success. Offensively, trusting a downtrending Matt Nichols will forever be a tough sell. This is two pretty poor showings in a row for him, and while I'm confident he'll rebound at some point since he always seems to, there's no guarantee that things won't get worse before they get better. On the injury front, Calgary's getting offensive lineman Shane Bergman back, while at the same time Winnipeg has announced defensive end Jackson Jeffcoat is heading to the six-game injured list. Promising Canadian rookie Jonathan Kongbo is going to be sliding into his starting spot, but that's a key loss for the Bombers. In terms of X's and O's, both running backs seem like good candidates to get plenty of touches. Winnipeg utilizing Andrew Harris heavily is practically a given, and we'll see how middle linebacker Corey Greenwood does against him. Despite Trevor Harris catching the secondary napping a couple of times last week, I think Calgary will be more than willing to play one-on-one coverage in order to bring more help into the middle of the field to limit Harris. Romar Morris, as stated, is a guy who should feature prominently in this offense going forward, and we'll see if Adam Big Hill in that Winnipeg linebacking group is able to keep him under wraps. I thought Big Hill had an off night against Toronto, and I'll be watching him in particular to see how well he rebounds. I don't mind Winnipeg in this spot, considering the short turnaround along with travel for Calgary, but there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of uncertainty surrounding both these teams right now in my evaluation. The underlying numbers suggest the Stampeders are not quite as good as their record indicates, but I just don't think you can confidently back Winnipeg at what I think is an inflated number. The total is something I'd be inclined to lean over on due to the special teams' strength of both teams. Rene Paredes and Justin Medlock are usually money inside of 50, and Terry Williams and Lucky Whitehead are two prime candidates to continue the parade to the end zone on kick returns. I think the best value pick on the board right now has to be Calgary on the money line, which you can find for around plus 275. This is definitely a game that has an anything-can-happen feel to it, and any time you have a legitimately strong team as such a big underdog, it's worth taking a chance on. This week's schedule will feature the more conventional Friday night East-West doubleheader, and first up will be the 4-3 and Rough Riders heading to Montreal to battle the 3-3 and and suddenly injury-plagued Alouettes. Saskatchewan is opened at minus 2, with some early action pushing that up to 2.5. The total has actually seen some heavy action so far, dipping down to 50.5 from the open of 53. Got to be honest, I can't believe this number has remained under a field goal considering it opened before Vernon Adams was officially declared out and before William Stanvac was revealed to be doubtful. 
Saskatchewan isn't exactly the pinnacle of health right now either, with Shaq Evans going down in practice the other day and Micah Johnson sounding doubtful. But as good as those guys are, they're more easily replaced than Adams or Stanback, both of whom are absolutely crucial to the Montreal offense. We've had about one full game worth of playing time from Antonio Pipkin this season, in addition to what we saw last year. So the recent sample is limited, but the difference in the Owls' attack under Pipkin compared to Adams has been night and day. The biggest difference that I've noticed is Adams' quickness and ability to get the ball out of there under pressure. He's made some downright heroic throws in the first third of the season, and while Pipkin is mobile, he hasn't shown that ability to get through his progressions while the pocket is collapsing. Montreal's offensive line has improved from the start of the season when they looked completely out of sorts, but I still think Adams was masking some of the pass protection issues. Now, Montreal is catching a bit of a break with Zach Evans out for Saskatchewan and Micah Johnson possibly not being fit to go on that defensive line, but that's a defensive line that still has Charleston Hughes and A.C. Leonard wreaking havoc off the edge, and I'm really worried about the Alouette's ability to give Pipkin the time he needs back there. Stanback's success running on first down was a huge reason the Owls' offense was able to chug along like they did during their three-game winning streak, so it really is a double whammy to be losing that weapon ahead of a game against a defense that won't be shy about bringing pressure. The good news for Montreal is that their own defense is legitimate and can give them a chance to win even if the offense is struggling. That said, their strength has been mainly in the secondary and their ability to cheat up to the line and play press coverage without getting burned. They've been generally soft against the run, and that's an area of the field where the Riders' offense, which calls more runs than anyone else in the league, can probably make some hay. I like the way William Powell and Marcus Thigpen have both been used in the offense, and it's created a 1-2 running back tandem that we don't see very often in the CFL anymore, not to mention the damage Cody Fajardo can do with his legs as well. The Riders haven't run wild on the ground by any means in terms of racking up big yardage, but the ever-present threat of a run has kept opponent defenses guessing and limited the effectiveness of opponent pass rushes. I've been really impressed with the job first-year head coach Craig Dickinson and OC Steve McAdoo have done with this group overall. We saw Fajardo on the limp a little against Hamilton, and he had his ankle taped up in the second half of that game. There's been no indication that his health is a going concern, so I think it's safe to proceed as normal on that front. I think this is an ideal spot for a Riders team that has seemed to really find their groove the last two weeks, and a tough break for the Alouettes to lose their starting quarterback on the heels of a frustrating loss against Ottawa. We saw some flashes from Antonio Pipkin last season, but at this point I don't see him causing any real problems for a very athletic defense that has only given up one major in their last two games. Saskatchewan isn't built to blow anyone out, but their approach on offense minimizes mistakes, and as long as special teams doesn't fold and give up points, this is a football game they should be very well positioned to win. Under was a pretty straightforward call on the 53 total. Obviously 50.5 is not as ideal, but the reality is through 8 weeks, the only reason any of these games are going over is due to the explosion of special teams scoring, so you're almost in a position of betting whether or not a kick is getting housed when it comes to a lot of these totals, since offenses just aren't scoring points right now. If indeed a kick goes the distance, the Riders are the likely candidate to do it with Thigpen and Luches Pirifoy both providing strong options. Shakir Ryan will get another look on returns for the Owls after making his season debut last week. Second half of the doubleheader has the Ottawa Red Blacks, fresh off a Devontae Dedman-fueled victory, paying a visit to the Edmonton Eskimos, looking to rebound from a tough loss in Calgary. Edmonton opened at minus 9 in this one, and that number has remained pretty stable, with the odd 8.5 to be found. 
The over-under sits at 48, with some under-action moving that to 47.5 in some spots. On the surface, this is a game the Eskimos should have a significant upper hand in in most areas. One area where they clearly do not is, surprise surprise, on special teams, which is likely the reason we're not seeing a spread closer to two touchdowns, nor do I suspect this will move anywhere close to that by Friday. It's a unique situation as far as I can recall to see a game where special teams has to be given similar weight to the traditional offensive and defensive units. That's the reality here when you have one team unleashing a guy fresh off a record-setting night of returns against another who has struggled to defend them while generating next to nothing on their own returns. Edmonton did attempt to address this this week, trading receiver Kenny Stafford to Saskatchewan for return man Christian Jones, who'd been on their practice squad. Jones was the Riders' regular return man last year and did a decent enough job of it, but this move is nonetheless a surprising one, at least to me. Stafford had been one of Trevor Harris's favorite targets and did a solid job stepping up in the absence of DeVaris Daniels, who spent most of the season on the injured list. Clearly, Jason Moss liked what he saw out of Kevin Elliott on Saturday, and he's the obvious candidate to fill the role Stafford was being used in. Whether Jones adds much to the return game remains to be seen, but considering Martise Jackson's penchant for running backwards trying to find the edge, and seldom succeeding in doing so, this should at least be an upgrade on some level. Probably the bigger concern, though, is what kind of scheme special teams coordinator A.J. Gass is going to come up with to contain Devontae Dedman, who's quickly looking like the CFL's newest return ace. Dedman has looked dangerous every time he's touched the ball this year, and even though you can credit awful tackling for one of his majors last week, there's no doubt that this guy's the real deal, and I really love the way he makes his first cut without appearing to lose any speed at all. Eskimo's punter Hugh O'Neill is questionable after injuring himself on a kickoff last week, so this is potentially another concern on the teams if there weren't enough already. One thing is certain, and that's that Edmonton needs to be kicking for the sideline as much as possible. But the return game isn't the only area of special teams where Ottawa appears to have a big leg up, literally, as Red Blocks kicker Lewis Ward just continues his remarkable streak, which is now closing in on 70 consecutive made field goals. We've reached a point where Ward on his own might be worth a field goal on the betting line, which is utter lunacy, but this guy just does not miss, and there's been no shortage of attempts from beyond 45 yards, which is generally the point at which field goals start getting missed with regularity. Eskimo's kicker Sean White has been really reliable throughout his career as well, but he's now missed a few short kicks this year, including a convert and a field goal inside of 40 last week. I wouldn't go as far as saying he's kicking for his job yet, but there's no shortage of guys floating around out there who've spent time on CFL rosters over the last few years, and it wouldn't shock me if GM Brock Sunderland at least had a thought to working somebody out if White has another bad evening. As far as the other units are concerned, I think it's safe to expect another big effort from an Edmonton defense that is now looking like the cream of the crop in the CFL, in a year where we've seen a lot of teams looking good on this side of the ball. They shut out Toronto at home two weeks ago and can really only be blamed for 12 of the 24 points the Stampeders put on the board on Saturday. Don Unamba and Anthony Orange have both been cleared to play, though it's almost a situation where guys below them on the depth chart have played so well that you risk upsetting the apple cart. Ottawa looked somewhat more competent on offense last week with Dominic Davis back running the show, but going from facing the Alouettes' defensive line to facing Edmonton's is going to be a challenge. I would expect Winston October to stick primarily to the run with some deep shots mixed in in hopes of minimizing the potential for losses and trying to maintain field position while hoping to get lucky on a deep ball or two. 
Defensively, the Red Blacks had their best outing in a while against Montreal last week, and it'll be interesting to see if the Eskimos stick to a more conservative approach, or if they go after their secondary a little more. Edmonton has tended to be a lot bolder at home this year, and they're coming off a second half against Calgary where they had success stretching the field, so I'm guessing we see a more aggressive mindset in this one. Greg Ellingson has been practicing this week, so keep an eye on the depth chart, which will probably be released on Thursday afternoon. If you could be reasonably confident that Edmonton's special teams unit might hold their opponent to a saw-off or even a small loss, I think you go at this number with guns a-blazing, but it's a serious worry right now. Ottawa's found a way to hang around and win against Montreal and almost against Calgary as well, on the strength of forcing some timely turnovers and having a field day on special teams. And when you're dealing with a number brushing up against double digits, all it takes is a couple of things to go wrong for the favorite to miss covering. I think the 47.5 on the total is a pretty tight number, but it pretty well assumes a special teams touchdown. With the way Edmonton's defense is playing right now, there's no guarantee at all that Ottawa finds the end zone on offense, and the Eskimos' offense is definitely not setting the world on fire themselves. Traditionally, going under on a sub-50 total in the CFL was something that took a strong stomach, but this season has been one of a kind so far in more ways than one. Last but not least, the BC Lions will head to Steel Town, fresh off a of bye week, where they find themselves as big underdogs against the Tiger Cats team, hoping to get back into the win column and maintain a firm hold on first place in the Eastern Division. This game opened with Hamilton, a minus 13.5 point favorite, and interestingly, it's the 1 in 6 Lions that have seen the heavy action so far, and this line now sits at minus 10.5. The total is held pretty firm at 51.5. BC comes into this game looking to hit the reset button and put together some sort of mid-season run to get themselves back into the playoff race. With what is essentially a three-and-a-half game hole to dig out of, there's really no margin for error left, and if there's still belief inside that locker room, I would expect a very concerted and desperate effort out of them on Saturday night. Of course, effort alone does not win football games, and execution on offense is sorely needed from a squad that put forth one of the all-time awful offensive showings the last time they took to the field, with less than 100 yards worth of production, at home no less. The focal point is once again going to be on quarterback Mike Riley and the offensive line that has failed miserably to protect him for the bulk of the season. BC's done some shuffling up front along the line, including bringing in Justin Renfro from the Stampeders to try and shore things up. Having the two-week break to try and implement some fresh schemes sounds good on the surface, but until we see these guys on the field, there's no way of telling if the changes are going to lead to success. But I do like what I've heard out of Coach Claybrooks, who seemed understandably exasperated two weeks ago. The positivity coming out of the locker room, or at least from the guys who've had microphones put in front of them, is encouraging to hear considering this team appeared to be emotionally and physically checked out by the second half of their last game. If Mike Riley gets the same level of protection he's had in recent weeks against Hamilton, we can forget about BC being any threat to win this game. But for argument's sake, if the protection holds up reasonably well, I actually think this is a defense they might be able to move the ball against. Hamilton has been overall strong on defense, but they have been burned at times by leaving their defensive backs on an island, and against a quarterback that loves to throw the deep ball, they could definitely open themselves up if the blitz fails to arrive on time. Defensive end Jagarek Davis and interior lineman Dylan Wynn are both looking really good right now, and any success the Lions have is going to hinge on their ability to block these two disruptors. The Lions also desperately need a big effort out of Duron Carter, who's done very little of anything up to this point. 
I'm not sure if Carter is going to draw Delvin Bro in coverage or not, but these guys both run hot under the collar, and it could potentially wake Carter up if this is the route Hamilton elects to go. Hamilton's offense is going to be looking to build off of a pretty good second half in Regina last Thursday, but there's still no word on whether or not they will have Brandon Banks in their arsenal, or Malik Irons for that matter. I've actually been rather surprised at the lack of attention Hamilton seems to be getting in regards to the number of injuries to their star players right now, and I think that's a big reason we've seen so much money flowing BC's way thus far. I mentioned a bit earlier how Montreal's offense has been night and day different with Antonio Pipkin at quarterback as opposed to Vernon Adams, and the same thing can be said about Hamilton's run game, which fell off a cliff almost immediately after Sean Thomas Erlington got hurt. Obviously this offense was dealt another blow with Masoli going down, but they were actually tracking pretty sharply downward for about a game and a half before Dane Evans had to step into the mix. There's not really one area of the BC defense that appears easily exploitable, nor is there one that opponent offenses really have to be particularly worried about either. The BC pass rush has been pretty toothless thus far, and that's not likely to change against the strong Hamilton offensive line, so Evans should have time in the pocket to go through his reads, and we'll see if him and Tommy Condell are able to identify a mismatch anywhere in the secondary. The Tiger Cats receiving core is decent enough to make do, but Banks is a game changer and their outlook no doubt changes based on whether or not he's healthy enough to go. One trend that's come to pass throughout the season is BC's lack of adjustment throughout football games. Once opponents find something that works, they tend to have their way with it against this team. The opening number for this game, just a shade shy of two touchdowns, seems to be in the mold of the Saskatchewan-Montreal line, where it has you wondering a little bit if the gravity of the injury situation regarding one of the teams, Hamilton in this case, wasn't fully appreciated by the odds makers and got taken advantage of early in the week. At 10.5 it starts to get interesting, but you have to ask yourself how likely it really is that the Tiger Cats are going to do enough on offense to get themselves over the 25 point threshold. Frankie Williams is a solid threat on returns, but BC does have their own man in Ryan Lankford coming off a two-touchdown effort, so I'm not sure you can give either side much of an edge in this department, though I will say I think Lankford is less likely to repeat his success based on prior history. Rule of thumb is that even a bad-looking offense like BC's can bumble their way to 14 points, and that tends to be the number I use as the floor for what can reasonably be expected. Based on recent results, I don't think you can depend on Hamilton to score enough to cover this number based on offensive output, and I would probably need to see this move down into the 7.5 or 8 range before the Ticats started looking attractive. Total-wise, I'm sounding like a broken record here, but under has been the predominant play for several weeks in a row now outside of a few rare situations, and I don't see a reason to stray from that in this game, besides the fact that people generally want to cheer for points as opposed to punts. After a couple of tough weeks of some pretty sharp lines with no obvious easy pickings, I think the books have thrown us a bit of a bone here with the Riders as a short favourite in Montreal. Without Adams slinging the rock, the Owls just aren't the same team on offense, and even if Stanback is able to go, he's obviously not at 100%, and I think that's going to be too much for them to overcome against a Riders team running pretty hot right now. I thought this was definitely going to eclipse the key number of three when Adams was officially ruled out, and it may yet get there, but for the time being it remains at 2.5, and, and that's where I'd be turning my sights this week in search of some beer money. Okay, that is going to wrap things up here for another week. As always, get in touch on Twitter by following at KDrive88, or check out the website firstlinepicks.com. 
The college season is just three weeks away now, so time permitting, there should hopefully be some NCAA content coming down the pipe on the website in addition to the regular CFL material. Thanks to everyone for listening along, giving your likes, and reaching out on Twitter. Hope you have a great weekend of football. Best of luck. We'll see you next time.